Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is September 15th, 2021, and it's my pleasure to have with me today my colleague Anel Shaleen. Anel is a research fellow for the Middle East um, at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft and a non-resident fellow with the Baker Institute for the Middle East. Check out her full bio. You'll find that with the blurb that's going to be accompanying this podcast and video online on the FMEP website. I also encourage folks to follow Anel on Twitter. That's at, at Anel Shaleen, all one word. And also you can follow her work, her analysis, her writing at www.quincyinstitute.org. Um, Anel, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank um, you so much for having me. It's fantastic. So. I was thinking as I was preparing to talk to you today that the last time you and I really spoke was almost exactly a year ago. Um, that was on September 2nd, 2020. My, how the time has flown. Um, and that was for a webinar that was co-hosted with the Foundation and, and the Middle East Institute, um, where we were looking at the implications of the Israel-UAE normalization deal. And for folks who missed that webinar, um, you should check it out. You can still find it on the website. And what's particularly fun, and I went back this morning and watched most of it, is that um, Anel and our other speakers were, were pretty darn prescient in their analyses. So here we are a year later, and this is the week where supporters of that deal that we discussed a year ago are celebrating it. Um, they're celebrating the first anniversary of the Abraham Accords. They're celebrating peace. Um, that's with quotes marks when I say it like that, um, uh, in the form of normalization between Israel and Arab governments. Um, and, and those celebrating include not just Israelis and the leaders of these governments, but also um, US political figures from both sides of the aisle, including the Biden administration. So with that as our context, um, here's the anniversary, here's the celebrations. Can I ask you first just to look back over the past year and assess the impact of these normalization agreements? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think maybe the most important thing that we should be thinking about in terms of the impact of the Abraham Accords is the possibility for greater regional destabilization, in particular because the Biden administration has not gotten back into the Iran nuclear deal or the JCPOA. And so as a result, we have um, Israel in a close relationship with the UAE, as well as Bahrain and, you know, Sudan, Morocco, these other countries that also agreed to normalize relations. But in particular, it's the relationship with the UAE where we are seeing the bar for confrontation with Iran has gotten lower because potentially Israel could launch uh, attacks from Emirati territory at Iran. It's closer, it's easier. Um, and so while on the one hand, I do, you know, in, in general, I think the Abraham Accords, theoretically, if they were part of sort of a good faith effort to really try to reduce tensions across the region more broadly, that would be wonderful if, if they had been coupled with this effort to sort of reduce tensions with Iran, for example. If, if all of this were part of this broader effort to try to reduce the extent to which the Middle East continues to suffer from a lot of destabilization, obviously contributing to refugee flows, et cetera, this is in the interests of both peoples in the region and the US and Europe and the world 
as a whole, but that's not what it was. It really was about Israel trying to move towards an anti-Iran coalition. And so unfortunately, I think in the absence of the US returning to the Iran nuclear deal, we are potentially, we are, we are seeing the possibility for escalation increasing. A year and a half into COVID, I still can't find my mute button as quickly as I should. Um, just a, a follow up on that, looking at the impact, we're having these celebrations. What, I mean, I think it's pretty clear from what you've said and you know what Israel is celebrating. When the UAE, for example, is celebrating these accords, what are they celebrating? And, and here I'm thinking, you know, there were announcements this week of, you know, the anticipating in like the next decade, a trillion dollars worth of trade. Um, that was, I think that was from an, an Emirati leader, that kind of thing, or, you know, the, the weapons. What exactly are they celebrating as being the success of the accords from their perspective? Well, I mean, in, in general, I do think it is interesting to, to see the parallels between the UAE and Israel that, and, and that in not, not only the UAE, also other Gulf monarchs, but in general, these are countries that are not actually all that interested in democracy in the Middle East. I mean, Israel knows that if democratic representative governments were to take control across much of the Middle East, we, they would experience a lot more pressure on the issue of Palestine. And we kind of go back to what was more of the status quo in the 20th century, where you had a lot of these Arab governments behaving very aggressively towards Israel as a result of, of their treatment of the Palestinians and, and insisting on the need for, for a, a solution to the problem, for, for a state, for, for Israel to, to end its ongoing occupation of Palestine and, and subjugation of the Palestinian people. And so Israel, Israel is not interested in actual democracy. And as a result of the US acting so in lockstep with Israel's preferences, and as a result of the U.S. maintaining the, the, the role of, of military hegemon for the region, these other countries um, have been willing to, if not outward, you know, completely normalize with Israel, to normalize kind of behind the scenes, to maintain um, relatively normal relationships. And on, from the UAE's perspective, they're also not interested in democracy. This is part of why we've seen the UAE along with Saudi Arabia and um, some of the other countries like Egypt going after Islamists so strenuously because Islamists at this point represent one of the last areas of sort of political opposition in a lot of these spaces that has to do with historical legacies coming out of the Cold War where leftists were, were targeted in the broader context, you know, with, with the blessing of the United States, these, you know, uh, countries would go after leftist activists. So essentially Islamists were some of this last space within which people could mobilize against the government. Um, and so now in the context of sort of a post 9-11, Islamists are very easily tar tarred as so-called terrorists. And this is something we've seen the UAE and other countries, Egypt, for example, doing over and over again, targeting groups like the Muslim Brotherhood as terrorists, even though these are groups that have renounced violence, do not embrace violence. These are, these are in no way connected to individuals who are actually involved in, in trying to carry out acts of violence. So in general, I, I do think what the UAE is celebrating is that 
their project seems to be going fairly well in terms of signaling their compliance with the US um, agenda, the US security agenda. Um, obviously things like the sale of F-35s, which had gotten some pushback. We saw efforts by Congress to actually use the, the Israel argument to say that the United States is legally committed to maintaining Israel's qualitative um, security edge that that was the basis upon which Congress was trying to say we cannot sell these F-35s to the UAE and that ultimately was unsuccessful and so we are likely to see that sale proceed unless other roadblocks are, are put in the way. But in general, the UAE does see Israel as, as a partner in the region and, and in particular as a way of signaling to the United States that Israel or that, that the UAE is sort of the, the best partner here for the US. As I wrote about last year, this was a great hedge for the UAE, kind of regardless of who won the US election last November, because obviously this had been a big priority for the Trump administration. But you know, the, the Biden administration is also in favor of the Abraham Accords. They it it remains um, support for Israel remains something that we do tend to see coming fairly strongly from both sides of the aisle, um, notwithstanding fringes sort of on the on the far right where we have seen Trumpism unleashing um, the, the sort of anti-Semitic, uh, you know, su super problematic language um, that I that I do think contributed to some anxiety among at least the population. Certain certain American Jews I know were were concerned about that. I, I don't have as much of a sense of whether Israel started to feel concerned about the, the wave of anti-Semitism that Trump had unleashed. And then on the far left, we do see political figures like Rashida Tlaib, Elhan Omar, and AOC, um, who are also beginning to question this sort of bipartisan consensus that the US must continue to support Israel. Um, on the other hand, I do think the UAE perhaps should be worried because we have seen, as I was saying, the possibility for greater regional destabilization. Um, and so I, I don't think the UAE really wants Israel to be in a position where, where it would launch missiles from Emirati territory, for example, because then the UAE would be a target um, for, for Iran. Yeah, there's, there's so much I want to unpack in that. So I'm going to come back to a couple of points you made. I first want to follow up. You mentioned Saudi Arabia. And you know, Saudi normalization with Israel was like the big prize that you know they hinted at during the Trump era was gonna be achieved. And then there's been periodic hints that it still might be achieved even though the Saudis are kind of at times playing coy, but it was suggested that it was kind of in inevitable and imminent. And that of course hasn't happened yet. Um, by the same token, I was reading the regional news this morning and there's an article in um, Middle East Monitor headline is Saudi Arabia considers buying Israeli missile defense system, which seemed pretty striking. You're talking about the behind the scenes coordination versus the increasingly open coordination. So you, can you talk about the state of Israel-Saudi relations in this wave of normalization that was taking place under the Trump era and where it sits today? Yeah, so absolutely. I know that that, that had been really the prize that um, Kushner was really trying to push for. And we did see things like um, Bibi Netanyahu traveling to Saudi Arabia, to Neom, um, just evidence of the fact that, that the Saudi-Israeli relationship is, is close and perhaps getting closer. 
Um, however, I, I think at this point, Mohammed bin Salman, the, the sort of de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, he's, it, it sort of benefits him the extent to which he gets to say, well, actually, my dad's still in charge, <laughs> where he, he gets to run a lot of things. But at the end of the day, King Salman is still nominally in charge um, and certain decisions that MBS makes he can say, well, you know, I, I, I can't normalize with Israel right now. My dad would, you know, my father would never allow that, for example, is one narrative that we've heard. Um, and I, I say this is beneficial to him because I think if it really were, if he were king and, and it looks like eventually he will become king, then the question will be, well, are, are you going to go ahead and normalize? And I think he is aware of the, the amount of domestic backlash that would unleash He's already engaged in a very ambitious effort to really try to transform certain aspects of Saudi society. And I do think it's important to separate the, the aspects that he is transforming, which are significant um, from the ways that he's not transforming. So he, you know, things like reducing restrictions on women's ability to move independently to be able to drive, for example, certain documents that women can now have access to, a lot more focus on women in the workplace. These are all very, very positive and, and to be commended, but at the same time, he's gone about this with a massive crackdown on any kind of opposition. And so when people talk about the idea that Saudi Arabia is liberalizing, it is in no way a political liberalization. And, and in fact, MBS has really consolidated all power within himself in a way that historically the members of the Al Saud family have often, there's a power has been more sort of dispersed among different centers, whether control of specific ministries or um, the oil reserves. Just in general, we hadn't necessarily seen this single figure consolidating so much power in himself. So on the one hand, he's felt that he has needed to do that, um, sort of to protect himself and to move forward with this vision. Um, but at the same time, he will be held responsible if he is unable to deliver on these promises he's made to the Saudi people. And he retains support among a lot of young people who studied abroad and who are eager for Saudi Arabia to become more normal, to, to sort of, um, for, for them to be able to interact uh, sort of the way that a lot of these young people had become accustomed to doing when they studied abroad in the US, for example. Um, but if he's unable to deliver, those, those individuals are not going to be willing to continue to, to support him because there, there are a lot of, of struggle. I mean, just Saudi Arabia economically, we're seeing right now, interestingly, more competition between Saudi Arabia and the UAE, where the Saudis are insisting that companies that wish to do business in, in Saudi Arabia or have access to the Saudi market need to have their headquarters in Saudi Arabia, whereas a lot of these companies are headquartered in the UAE right now. Also starting to see tariffs imposed on goods that, that used to just travel um, tariff-free within the, the bounds of the GCC, in particular targeting Emirati goods. So in general, I think MBS, it's, it's not yet clear um, whether he would be able to take on something like normalizing with Israel because he's already doing a lot and he's already having to sort of pull out all the stops on repression to just even just move Saudi Arabia as far as he's been able to move it thus far. Um, and so I do think he's, he's probably 
somewhat grateful that he can fall back on on the argument that you know his dad is technically still in charge and so he won't be able to normalize while his dad is on the throne i i, I find myself thinking about the the joke about like the, the drunk guy in the bar who's picking fights saying hold me back hold me back but he, wants to be back he doesn't want to have to do it um, exactly right and then the question would be well what happens when when he is king um Exactly, it's a whole different kind of pressure. Um, yeah. Looking, actually, I mean, that's I think a good lead. And the question I wanted to ask you next is about the U.S. And I think you know a lot of people celebrating the Abraham Accords this week are probably not thrilled that they're celebrating it under a Biden administration and not in a continued Trump administration. But you know, them's the breaks. Um, but you know, as you said earlier, the Biden administration is still supportive of the Abraham Accords. I think that's that's not unexpected. I think Biden made pretty clear that was his position even before the election during the campaign period. And I mean, who wants to say I'm against normalization and peace? That's not a great political uh, talking point. Um, but you know, I'd be I'd be curious what your thoughts are about the Biden administration's sort of policy when it comes to moving ahead and, and, and expanding. Because the pressure now is you know, you've got to expand these, you've got to do more, there's legislation in Congress on this. And not just the question of like, if the, if the Trump administration, many of us thought the pressure on here, why they wanted this was first and foremost about, you know, taking the pressure off Israel and Israel-Palestine, we divert focus. And I think in the wake of the Trump administration, we see a lot of it clearly as actual personal economic benefit because a lot of the architects of these are now directly engaged in things that are economically beneficial. But beyond that, the entire thinking, the entire approach was transactional, right? In each of these agreements, there's a transactional aspect where the US gave something, whether it was F-35s or recognition of the Western Sahara as, as Moroccan territory or whatever. I mean, this is a big payoff. Um, how do you see this playing out under the Biden administration with its priorities, particularly its focus on re-entering the JCPOA, although that seems more remote now than it did you know, six months ago? How do, how do you see them, how, how do you see the shifts or the non-shifts in U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis broader normalization um, now and, and going forward? Yeah, I definitely, as you said, I mean, and, and as, I, as I, I also tried to say at the beginning, obviously efforts to try to reduce tensions are, are very welcome, but again, it needs to be it needs to actually be a good faith effort to, to try to improve relations across the board and not just set up the, the sort of anti-Iran coalition, which, I, which would very much, um, if, if that were to escalate to conflict, the US would, would be dragged in despite Biden's efforts to pivot to Asia and focus military resources on China, which itself is problematic and is not what the US should be doing. Um, but in, in general, I think as in the context of, of Biden pulling out of Afghanistan and uh, obviously kind of engaging in, in this shift and thinking about the, there's the strategic posture of you coming up where we'll learn how the Biden administration is thinking about moving uh, America's vast military resources around the planet. Um, in general, <clears throat> the I don't think that the Biden administration wants to focus as much on the Middle East as Trump did or as previous administrations have. This, again, things like pulling out of Afghanistan, despite the fact that, it, you know, this is something my organization has talked a lot about, that it really it shouldn't be harder 
to start a war or to stay in a war than it is to end a war. And yet what we've observed with the, all the pushback on Biden ending U.S. involvement in Afghanistan was was just how politically costly that was. But it but it it's it evidence of his determination to do so and, and his administration's focus on the need to think about shifting more towards China. So what's interesting, however, is I anticipate that Biden may leave the current military footprint in the Middle East as it is. Um, he may just kind of, again, given what, what we've observed, we know that um, sort of pulling out of the region, he already had to deal with so much pushback on that. But what's interesting is even if he decides to sort of maintain some of these antiquated troop levels in places like Kuwait or where you just have tens of thousands of Americans just sort of sitting there, um, that that won't matter. Even though the US remains so militarily engaged in the region, there's this perception among Arab leaders that the US is less interested or that there's less attention being focused here. And, and there is in contrast to sort of what we observed after 9-11 and the lead of you know, the, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, obviously there was a huge mobilization. And so now even just sort of getting back to what was already, what, what remains a fairly high number of troops in the region, Arab leaders are feeling neglected. And so we are likely to see more of these efforts to diversify their security guarantors, to reach out to China, for example, to reach out to Russia, that as you mentioned, um, Saudi Arabia may be buying missiles from Israel. And so the, I, I could imagine it might feel a little maddening for, for a Biden administration, which maintains a lot of military sales. I mean, we, we just saw that the US is going to maintain most of the military aid that um, the U.S. usually gives to Egypt. There's been a condition put on a portion of it, but but most of it is going through. Um, and and but but even so, even despite the ongoing massive involvement of the U.S. in the Middle East, we may just see the calculus start to shift here. And what I do think is is interesting on that front is that this this might actually be good for the broader. Um, in, in service of the broader agenda of a more peaceful and more stable region, because it is a result of this overwhelming US involvement and this overwhelming US favoritism towards Israel and towards Saudi Arabia and towards the UAE and towards Egypt that has enabled some of these more aggressive behaviors. Whereas when we've seen the US signal that the, the Americans are not, not gonna fight these countries' wars for them, for example, Trump's muted response after the cake attack, um, on Saudi, the, the attack on Saudi oil facilities. Um, obviously, you know, Trump, Obama's decision to join the Iran, to, to um, negotiate the Iran nuclear deal, all of these were seen as evidence by these countries that they couldn't necessarily count on the US to, to pursue their own preferences and that the US maybe couldn't be, was no longer as dependable. And in general, I think this is going to be positive because we know that Russia and China are not going to be playing favorites in to the same extent that the US has, that they, they have working relationships with Iran, for example, and that their behavior or their actions in the region are going to 
are, are not going to sort of maintain this artificial power imbalance where we've had the US backing up countries like Israel and Saudi Arabia who then feel they can behave very aggressively towards Iran. And so again, this is why we are seeing now efforts to reduce tensions from, from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE, the GCC countries in general. We saw the, the talks in Baghdad um, between, Actually, between the talk, GCC and Iran. Can you talk a little more just about that? I wanted to specifically ask you about some of the thawing and you've written about this and it's really interesting, this idea that the US kind of taking its thumb off the scales actually, you know, does counter maybe counterintuitively um, has a stabilizing effect by encouraging, you know, smarter or more strategic and thoughtful behavior. Can you talk about that specifically? Because that isn't getting, I think, a lot of coverage or analysis. Totally. So I, I think part of what's interesting is people, people tend to argue instead that, well, if the U.S. plays a smaller role in the region where it's we're going to see all this violence. And they they point to example um, to the war in Yemen, where after the US negotiated, or as the US was in the process of negotiating the Iran nuclear deal, Saudi Arabia leading this coalition of Arab partners invaded Yemen. And part of the, the rationale for that was because they perceived the, the threat of Iran supporting the Ansar Allah, the Houthi movement in Yemen, that this was completely unacceptable. And if the US wasn't, you know, if the US was going to be playing nice with Iran, the Saudis had to take over, you know, take control for their own security. And yet now, I mean, that was in 2015. And so here we are six and a half years later, and the Saudis remain very bogged down in Yemen. It's been a hugely expensive war for them, um, very hard as far as MBS's efforts to try to rebrand the Saudi image as a much more moderate and progressive place that's open for investment. You know, it's, 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 it's A, just expensive because so many resources keep going into Yemen and also just doesn't really fit this image he's trying to, to put forward of Saudi Arabia. So I think that actually the, the case of Yemen may have just been one of the last gasps of these countries trying to trying to force the United States to stay involved in the region to say, well, if you back off, we're gonna we're gonna start invading each other. That's why you have to stay here. But actually once once they start to do that and they realize wars are costly and and often take much longer than anticipated, what we're seeing now, I think, is actually a more accurate representation of what is likely to, to result from a smaller US role in the region, which is that these countries don't actually want to fight Iran. They don't actually really want to fight each other. Um, and in particular, the economic competition going on between UAE and Saudi Arabia right now, they're trying to attract investors and war scares away investors. So I do think in general, and in particular, as, as we are, um, as I was talking about in terms of perhaps a, a more robust role for Russia and China, we'll see that a more international gulf and a more sort of internationally involved um, Middle East may in fact be a more stable Middle East than, than as, as I was saying, this sort of inflation of the perceived um, ability of some of these countries to, to act more aggressively because they felt that they had the US backing them up. Now, I would encourage um, anyone listening to this, Anel has a great piece um, earlier this week, which touches on a lot of this. Um, the, it's on responsiblestatecraft.org. Um, 
you know, what that article, the hook for that article um, is the reports that we saw in the Israeli press, I think in on September 2nd or so, um, talking about how the Israeli government is lobbying the Biden administration to lay off pressure on Arab allies. And it specifically talks about Egypt and Saudi Arabia, right? So with Egypt, you've got the human rights concerns and the recent you know, yesterday's announcement of really at, at most kind of like, you know, almost symbolic deductions for, for human rights uh, concerns from their aid is, has, has left a lot of a lot of people who are looking to the Biden administration to become a, a real leader and live up to its, its commitments on human rights has left them quite disappointed. Arguably, they're taking a softer position than, than the Trump administration did on Egypt. Obviously, Saudi Arabia, you still have the issues with Khashoggi and all the other concerns. And, and beyond that, I mean, this is this is a, a obviously a conundrum for a Biden administration that wants to show the face of, an, a, of a government that is actually concerned about international norms and human rights and all that. So in that context, what you just laid out about the shifting, the, the, maybe the, 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 the uh, thawing of relations between the Gulf and Iran and with China and Russia, how do you see the role of Israel, which still, I mean, obviously you wrote about this, has an interest in seeing this axis as there's the anti-Iran axis and then there's everybody else. Um, and I want this to be this last question, maybe you, if you have anything else you wanna add, I mean, how do you see Israel going forward? And I don't know if you're comfortable speculating on this, but as we enter midterm elections season in the United States and then head towards the next presidential elections, obviously anything related to Israel plays into US domestic politics and both constrains and pushes uh, an administration to, to move in certain directions. So how do you see this playing out as Israel is recognizing, I'm sure the same trends that you're recognizing? Well, I think what, as as you pointed out, what I wrote about in that piece was Israel trying to pressure the U.S., as you were saying, to, to not try to hold <clears throat> Saudi Arabia or Egypt accountable for their human rights abuses. And as I say in the piece, they needn't be worried because the Biden administration has signaled that despite their rhetoric on human rights, that they are they're not, in fact, going to to prioritize those over the interests of the military industrial complex, for example, or, or maintaining this amount of military aid that, that we still give to primarily, you know, Israel being the top recipient and then Egypt and then Jordan. Um, however, I, I think in, in general, one, one thing I, I just wanted to point out here is we see the Biden administration adopting this ongoing US narrative within which they say that it's better that the US sell these countries weapons than if Russia or China does it, because we at least will have a conversation about human rights. And as I write in the piece, this, it, it's, it's sort of astonishing. Like, of course, China, we know China and Russia are not concerned about human rights and they have horrible human rights records, but, but it's, it's just sort of ridiculous the thought that as you're selling someone weapons to kill people, you're, you're wrapping that up with this conversation about human rights. I mean, it's, it's just sort of mind boggling that, that this is seen as, as influencing these countries' behaviors in any way, because we know that it doesn't. And so this notion that simply by talking about human rights, this is why it's preferable from a human rights perspective that the US sell these countries' weapons. Um, as I say in the piece, actually, this, this provides a model for these countries of what the US is actually looking for, which is that you, as long as you say something 
about human rights, you can go ahead and violate as many human rights as you want because we are modeling that same behavior of as long as you just talk about it, that's all we really care about. Um, and so, you know, moving forward, I, I just, I would want to make the point here that I, I think that the United States really needs to totally reconsider the extent to which our, that the US has any sort of industrial program. It, it is in favor of the military industrial complex that, you know, we, we decry government intervention in, in the economies of other countries and we talk about how great our market system is and yet we continue to see such massive subsidization of, of defense contra contractors of the military industrial complex and that it continues to be seen as this great jobs creator when in fact there's multiple studies out there that show that it is not. Um, and so moving forward as we are seeing Russia and China likely expanding their market share of the weapons that they're selling, that it, this is actually in the interest of the United States to no longer be the, the weapons provider for the world, because we've already seen the ways that that, that contributes to blowback against us um, and, and fosters this attitude of, of the United States propping up these, these abusive regimes in other parts of the world. Um, to get to your question about Israel, I, I I think that what we're observing from them are efforts to escalate against Iran. Um, obviously, it's it can it can be somewhat tit for tat. We know Iran is is also engaging in these similar sorts of behaviors, but a lot of this is coming from from Israeli aggression because I think Israel is aware of the fact that time may be running out within which the U.S. would be willing to fight a war with Iran on Israel's behalf. Um, and that if, if the US, God forbid, got bogged down in some kind of Cold War with China, that we perhaps would have less time for, for Israel's uh, squabbles with Iran. Um, and so I do worry a lot about the Israelis potentially seeing the window closing here within which they could, could launch some kind of greater confrontation with Iran. On the other hand, we did just see that interesting headline coming out I might get it wrong, but but essentially just signaling some kind of willingness or acknowledgement that it was actually the Iran nuclear deal was the only thing that has successfully gotten Iran to stop enriching nuclear fuel. And so if Israel is coming at this from a good faith perspective of, look, we just don't want Israel to have a nuclear weapon, then the best thing for the for Israel and for the whole region would be to rejoin the JCPOA and and you know I think part of what's been difficult at this point is the Biden administration's insistence on sort of this longer and stronger deal, whereas you know the U.S. pulled out in the first place. And so I think it's very important that the U.S. should be the one to just get back into the deal as it was. And then once there's been some some groundwork laid of cooperation there, then maybe the U.S. can try to build on that. I mean it's unclear, obviously under. Um, President Raisi, whether that would be possible. But the point being that this was the only thing that worked to, to and, and that it's, and that this is in the interest of the region as well, that if Iran is able to sort of behave more, as, is not treated as a pariah, they won't necessarily behave in, in the only way, the only avenues that are left open to them, which are sponsoring of proxies, et cetera. Um, and so in general, I, I do think it is very much in Israel's interest and in the U.S. interest to get back into the Iran nuclear deal and to try to shift 
our, our behavior in a way that helps to signal to Iran that we are actually interested in, in them being able to, um, to meet the needs of their people. Obviously this gets, you know, the Iran, Iranian regime has all kinds of horrible, horrible things that they do. But the point is a lot of US policies right now really just hurt the Iranian people, the sanctions regime, and, and it, they don't in fact hurt the regime. And um, that just in general, Israel and the United States should both share an interest in trying to reduce the possibility for conflict in the region. Thank you. I will say, maybe I'm overly cynical. When I saw the headline and the article in the Times of Israel about Israel lobbying, essentially on behalf of the Saudis and the Egyptians, you know, telling the US not to engage, my, my first thought was, very much in line with your article, which is, you know, they don't have to worry Israel. The U.S. is probably not going to do anything significant on these on these files. Um, but it seemed to me that this is an effort, particularly making it public the way it was made public, is an effort to show, hey, here's value for normalization, right? We're in your we're in your camp, um, which is something we've you know we we see in the past with you know Egypt, um, U.S. Egypt relations very much linked to the peace deal um, between Israel and Egypt um, for years with Israel in many ways being a defender of Turkey up until it wasn't um, because of Turkey's Israel-Palestine politics. So again, maybe I'm overly cynical, but I, I, I have the same analysis. I can't imagine that, that it was that, that that engagement is what shifted US policy, but I think there's an effort to make it appear that that has an impact. Uh, I, I think that's that's a really great point. Yeah, definitely, you know, for Israel to show, hey, if you normalize with us, we'll, you know, we'll go talk to the big boss. Um, but I but I do think increasingly as as the US, I mean, and part of this isn't even about a conscious choice made by the United States. I mean, I do think the conscious choice of the US is going to be, unfortunately, this this notion of getting back into a Cold War mentality of trying to compete with China, et cetera. And that that, that is actually undermining America's ability to, to sort of retain our existing quality of life. I mean, just, just everything that Americans are sort of used to experiencing as you know, the, the largest economy and the strongest military, like all of the ways in which American supremacy, that, that Americans have benefited um, and enjoyed the privileges of supremacy, that as the US continues along this super hyper-militarized path and especially trying to compete with a peer, um, such as China, that this is just undermining our ability to, to deal with actual challenges, to deal with COVID, to deal with climate change, that, that we are speeding our own demise by continuing to pursue this sort of zero-sum hyper-militaristic approach. And so as I, was, as I was saying, it may not really be up to, to the U.S. in the future, that we, we will start to see some of these dynamics and that it it won't matter as much what the US uh, policy is because some of these things will happen kind of regardless of, of what the US preferences are. It, it's striking to me because when we spoke about this a year ago, I think we were talking quite a bit about the fact that the Abraham Accords were in many ways arms deals, right? There's there the element that, and, and there was concern about fueling an arms race. And, and what you lay out suggests that, you know, if it's not gonna be an arms race because it's, fueling normalization, it's going to be an arms race because we now are in a Cold War framework. Either way, the only parties that win are the people who are selling weapons. And, and there we- As usual. As usual. 
Um, okay, and, and I think there we're going to have to end it. Um, and I'll thank you so much for stopping by today and having this conversation. I so appreciate your insights. I hope we can do this again. For our audience, thanks for listening or watching. Don't forget to follow Anel on Twitter at, at Anel Shaleen and follow her work at www.quincyinstitute.org. Finally, as always, I want to remind people, subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do so on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. That way you don't miss any of the fantastic content that we are posting pretty much every week at this point. Um, you can also find the podcast and a video of this podcast on our website, which is www.fmep.org. And with that, we're going to end this. I'm Laura Friedman. Thank you, uh, Anel Shaleen. I am the president of the Foundation Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you. Just a quick correction on today's podcast webinar. The correct website to follow Anel's work is www.quincyinst, that's Q-U-I-N-C-Y-I-N-S-T dot org. I got that wrong a couple of times during the podcast. And for that, I apologize. You should definitely check out her work. Thank you.